Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Welcome to church. So glad that you're here. In 2019, Jeannie and I had the opportunity to go to Zambia and uh, to see what was happening in the ministry with Hands of Hope and Zambia Works and the seminary that's there and the churches that are being planted. And um, no one could have prepared me to see the level of poverty and the level of need uh, that I saw. Uh, when I, first of all, in Zambia, the western province is the poorest of Zambia. Zambia, by our standards, would be poor no matter where you uh, decided to call home if you were going to live there. But in the western province, about 80% of the population is regarded as being poor. And 70% of that 80% is women. Women are treated poorly, people are treated poorly, and especially those outside of the town. They are seen as less valuable. And the goal of Zambia Works and Hands of Hope uh, is to bring dignity to people. And when they looked at what are the things that are needed to bring dignity, uh, the first was fresh water. And over 100 plus wells have been put in, in towns where people can walk a distance and get fresh water. We drove through towns where the same water where kids were playing, where laundry was done, was the same water that they would drink from. And people were dying of dysentery just because they didn't have a well uh, that cost just a couple of thousand dollars. That's a remarkable thing to not have fresh water for your community. Schooling. Uh, there was no education provided for, for children that was real. I mean, they had to walk a long distance to get to education. And... Hands of Hope began to put schools in that were really great schools, good schools by the town's con, uh, expectation. Uh, they were, and, and in fact, the people in the town were complaining. That should be in the town. That should be for us. As if they were more valuable than the people in the bush. That's what had, had been determined. In fact, there, the women especially uh, when they became of age, a flag would go up on a hut or in a place that they were living, and when that flag went up, that meant that my daughter was for sale. Can you imagine? That meant if she was in school, if she had acumen in school, she was now going to be disregarded. She could no longer attend school. Well, in the schools that Hands of Hope built, they were welcomed back, and I saw some of these young women who had kids coming back to school to get their education. In the best of years, when there's water, there's a crop that's available that uh, uh, can just eke by. But in a drought, the poor suffer and the poor die. Malnutrition is everywhere. People dying of basic diseases that they shouldn't, people dying of malaria, people dying of dysentery, kids, the, the death rate of children was so high because there was no way to get to help. There are uh, clinics that Hands of Hope has put in, and we videoed those clinics, and they were bringing medicine and education to people that didn't have it. One of the first days that we were there as we drove to one of the sites that we were going to see where a church had been planted, a school had been built, and, a, uh, and water had been brought, 
we would pick up people in their little tiny pickup and they would pile in the back. And I was in the back also and kids were piling in around me and I met a child that was saved because there was a clinic that was available for this kid with malaria. A grandmother was carrying her child miles the sandy roads to get help for their child with malaria. And from our perspective, maybe we would say, hey, pull yourself up by the bootstraps and make yourself a better life. But there is an insidious nature to poverty that those of us who have never been impoverished can't hardly recognize. Do you know what it's like to be considered less than everyone around you? Less valuable, less important, less entitled? Well, I saw it. And I watched the tenacity of Vicki Waterlick pushing through the politics, those who would want to get their hands on money, and her trying to make every dollar matter. Well, here's the remarkable piece. I watched the church alive. People believed that God cared about them. People believed that Jesus cared about them because people who were Christians and who were planting churches were fighting for dignity. They were helping them with how they could grow food that sustained them. In the beginning, with Hands of Hope, they would give chickens out with the hopes that they could make money from the eggs and people would kill the chickens because they were hungry and they had no history of how to, make, how to have a business sense. So they would set up a farm with the ability to be able to sustain life, but they, would, they were hungry. They killed the chicken. There wasn't an education. There wasn't knowledge. There was no sense of self-worth. There was no dignity. Now, through the ages of the church, the church has been um, a, a, an advancer of the cause of the poor, of education, of medicine, there's a reason that all of our hospitals have church names on them for the most part. Because the church used to be the one who advanced those causes. As the government has taken that responsibility, the church has pulled away from concerns for the poor. Concerns for those who are less fortunate than us. In many regards, the church has become self-protective. And asked, how do we keep ours and make sure nobody gets it? Well, Jesus speaks to this today, and I have entitled this sermon maybe something different than you would expect given the parable, the second parable in this section of Jesus' teaching on money. My title of this sermon is God Will Reward Those Who Love Him. Because I think that what extends how... As we love God, we will love the people he loves. And we'll see that unfold as the sermon goes on. This is a hard sermon in a way because it could come off like God is, you know, Jesus doesn't understand this is going to be about grace and you're going to get to heaven based on mercy and we're going to, you know, he's, he's describing someone getting to heaven based on being poor and someone not getting to heaven based on being rich. And we'll look at that, but the first thing I want you to see is that many will achieve temporary rewards for loving possessions. 
God's going to reward those who love him, but today, many will receive, achieve temporary rewards for loving possessions. We're in Luke 16, 19 through 31. Luke 16, 19 through 31. In verse 19, it says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Jesus is uh, very concise in his teaching using parables. There's lots of times we would want more to be able to ask questions, and I'm sure his disciples did. But he tells, he uses words economically so that he can get to the point that he's making. And our job, the expectation from Christ's perspective is that we will do the work of understanding what he's saying. Not only in light of this one story, but in light of all of Scripture. We'll see that as this story goes on. This story begins the same way last week's parable began. There was a rich man. If you were to look back at the beginning in Luke 16, he began in verse 1, there was a rich man who had a manager. In that case, he was talking about the manager, but I think Jesus wants us to put these two a bit together. Certainly God does as he's put them in Luke 16 together with an explanation in between that we can't love both God, we can't serve both God and money. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. Jesus uses an economy of words, but in the first century, you would already know that this is as wealthy as it gets for a Jewish man. I mean, this is a man who's wearing purple, which is a sign of royalty. It's also the most expensive dye available in the first century. He's wearing a purple which says, I am really important, possibly more important than you. Get out of my way when I'm walking down the street. I'm wearing purple. You're not. He's wearing purple. And what does it mean by fine linen? That means his undergarments are the best that there is. So he not only has an outward show of wealth, he has an inward show of wealth. What his purple garments are covering is the finest undies money can buy. Nothing but the best for him. And why not? He's an important person. And he feasted sumptuously every day. Last week I made an, uh, an allusion to the fact that the average person got a meal a day. The average person flirted with malnutrition in the first century. Struggled with getting water, enough water for the day, and oftentimes with enough food for the day. This is a man who is feasting sumptuously. The comparison in the parables is that of what the, what the father threw a feast for the younger son when he came back and killed the fatted calf. This guy's rich enough that he's killing the fatted calf daily. He's throwing himself a grand old party. Is that evil? To live wealthy? Well, that's not the end of the story. That's just the description of this first man. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and he feasted sumptuously 
every day. He threw himself a party every day. And maybe he would say, if he was building an argument for himself, well, it's my money. I earned it. God gave it to me. If God gave me money and not you, he must have liked me more than you. Verse 20, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even dogs came and licked his sores. So at his gate, the word here used for gate is a large gate. It's a place that was set up so that you couldn't get into his inner court without permission. Notice also that he is laid at this gate, which means he's not able to get there of his own accord. Someone has brought him with the expectation that, you know, someone who is a child of Abraham will notice that a child of Abraham is suffering like this if he's laid at his gate. And the rich man clearly had to walk by him daily. Maybe even he rolled down the window and said, get a job. There's a poor man who is laid at his gate. His name is Lazarus. Now, it is super significant that he is named Lazarus. Why? This is the only person Jesus names in all of his parables. Why is that significant? I think it's significant because he was nameless to everybody else. I mean, everybody knew the rich man's name. Did anybody know Lazarus? God did. God saw him. Did you see him? His name was Lazarus. He was covered with sores, which means he's not getting basic health care. You suppose it was available inside of that gate? You suppose someone could have cared for him or seen him? He desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. You may imagine uh, our tables. Now, if you were to come to the Berge house and come for a dinner, you would get plenty. If you were to come to one of the meals that the Bridge Church throws, we always have more than enough. It's kind of a thing for me. I, if we're going to serve the, the teachers at the school, we are going to have plenty, which means we are packaging up food and sending it home with people. There is plenty of food. This one desires to be fed with the scraps that are left from the rich man's table. And in my house, there's a table that has legs, and you sit on a chair much like this. In that day, that wouldn't have been the case. You'd have reclined. It isn't the table that food was just falling off of. I've read one ex uh, example of this, and I think this is probably right. The wealthy would use bread to clean their hands. They would take water from the bowl, they would wash it, and they would take fresh bread, and they would dry off their hands on the fresh bread, and they would toss that on the floor, on the ground, on the dirt. And this poor man, this child of Abraham, child of God, would have been content to eat the scraps 
that were left from him washing his hands. Those of us who have dogs in our house, this is different than what's being described here. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. That is not friendly dog feeling bad that he's in pain. That is scavenger hoping he'll die soon. Also making him unclean. A wealthy man looking at this poor man with the sores and with the dogs and being unclean to even come into the presence of God would feel self-righteous and keeping going and saying, I have no time for you, I have no place for you. When we started the church, we had uh, uh, the, the privilege of joining Orphan Network with an orphanage in, um, in the, in below, below Mexico, down south. And uh, it's Nicaragua, right? <laughs> I'm drawing a blank. I'm sitting here thinking, okay, it's not below Mexico, it's Nicaragua. So we're in Nicaragua, and, and if you were to talk to, the, to, to Aaron Anderson and his family, they went down and saw the abject poverty. They saw people not getting shot. They saw people that lived far enough away. So he said, they need a bus. And he invested in a bus so that he could get more kids to school. He saw it. This year again, we're going to go to Haiti and send Dale and, and uh, so excited to now partner. That's a new partnership for us. Dale has been going to Haiti for how many years? 20. For 20 years you've been going to Haiti. Have you seen poverty? Have you seen throwaway people that have no value for seemingly have no value to the rest of the world? And he goes for 20 years again and again. And now we have the privilege of supporting with him. One day going with him, hopefully post-COVID. And Zambia. We want to, as a church, before we build our building, build a clinic there. There was a young lady who was giving birth to twins. They put her on a bike because there was complications and pushed her on sandy roads to get her to a clinic. And she died on the way. The children lived. And the church fought for those kids and brought food for the kids. And we're, we want to build a clinic there. Many will achieve temporary rewards for loving possessions. We may believe with the rest of the world that somehow God loves us more because we have a lot, but I would argue that God gave us a lot to love more. Many will also receive eternal rewards for loving God. In verse 22 through 26, Jesus goes on, to say words that are kind of hard for us to hear. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. This first verse doesn't seem too bad. So God saw the poor man and God carried him to Abraham's side. Why Abraham? Why is Abraham mentioned here? Abraham would have considered to be the, the highest of the Jews, the best. He's the first. The expectation is that the scriptures say, friend of God. 
also recognizes an example. He is the example of faith that leads to righteousness. And Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. His friendship with God was based on faith. Jesus isn't talking about faithless. Now we're going to just be a works mentality of getting to heaven, and, and based on what you do with your money, you'll get to heaven. That's not what he's saying. But clearly he's saying that money can prohibit us in the next generation, in the next, next time. that When we see Jesus, how we handled our money speaks to our faith, speaks to our love. And at the moment that they die, they immediately have a different reaction. Now, the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. From a human perspective, nobody sees it. Jesus is saying what's happening right after he dies. From a human perspective, the rich man also died and was buried. How was the rich man buried? We don't see that the poor man was buried. Well, we know how the rich were cared for in burial. And why do you take such care when you bury? You take such care because you want to honor them in death. And you want them to have, from an Egyptian perspective, a great afterlife or a great next step. So linen, finest linens and perfumes and aloes are used and a cave is carved out. And He was cared for. He was known. I mean, there's probably a public proclamation that the rich man had died. Any public proclamation for the poor man? Yeah, it was in heaven. Heaven was watching. And God sends his angels to care for this poor man. Verse 23, it goes on, and we find out that the plight of the rich man is far worse than we imagine. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Well, in verse 23, we begin an example of Jesus using story not to give us theology about what happens after death. He, and, but I also want to acknowledge that much of what we have in the scriptures of what describes hell and what describes heaven is poetic terms used to describe an emotion, something that we're going to feel when we're there. There are those who are going to be in a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth fire or destruction and judgment, and there are those who are going to be on streets of gold, who are going to be, have every tear wiped away, who are going to be cared for by heaven itself, and are going to have no more pain and no more suffering, and are going to have the very inheritance of Jesus Christ poured out on them. That's clear. But in this situation, Jesus isn't trying to describe, oh, there's going to be a window in Hades. We don't even know if Hades is talking about the holding place. I'm not talking about purgatory. I'm talking about right after we die, we go to a place that is either paradise. It's all Jesus gave us. This day you will be in paradise with me. Or the place that the others will wait for, the grave, until judgment. We don't know if he's Hades is talking about that or if it's talking about hell and heaven. At this point, Jesus is just trying to describe a great reversal that's going to happen for people that don't love God. Conversely, Jesus is not saying, if you're poor, you will get to heaven. There's no sense of that in the rest of the New Testament. Those who have faith in Jesus Christ love God, obey God, care about what God wants, and go home to him one day. 
But here we have in Hades, being in torments, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Jesus is using a picture that is completely opposite of what the poor man had experienced and the rich man had experienced on earth. The rich man was having the best spot at the table. The rich man was considered the most honored. Everyone wanted to sit next to him. And at his table, he would have talked about how Abraham, you know, look at what I've done. Look at the great works that I've done. Look at the great things I've done with my money. And surely God loves me, and surely I'm going to be treated well when I get to heaven. And the picture is that he can look up from his place that he's being held, and he can see that this poor man of no account, that wasn't even worthy of being acknowledged and certainly should be avoided, he looked at him and said, Abraham, would you send him for me? You see the lack of repentance still in the story? He still thinks the poor man should be his servant. He doesn't even address him. He just he acknowledges his name, Lazarus. But he's still sending him. He doesn't say, I am sorry that I didn't see what you went through. I am so sorry that I just... There's no repentance here. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Verse 25, but Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here. And you were in anguish. This reversal is not something that is unique to Jesus' teaching, nor is it unique to the Scriptures, as we'll see in our third point. God has put his heart on display for the poor again and again. God has put his heart on display for the disenfranchised. The fact that Jesus came and suffered and died for us is a very story of Jesus coming for the poor and coming for those who have been dehumanized by sin. And it would be only right that his children, those who have received that incredible valuing, that we would be about the business of valuing others. Who? The most devalued. Verse 26, and besides all this between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. That is true throughout the scriptures. That we have an occasion now to repent. We have a moment now to turn. We can still do what's right. We can still leverage what we have for the good. How much time we have, I don't know. Last week I said it in terms of a quarterback in two to four seconds. Eternally speaking, I think that's about it. 
We have a very short time here on earth to live as if this is not our life and be about the business of our Savior. When many of us, myself included, are tempted to live as if our job here is to build a fence, build a wall, protect ourselves, and wait for Jesus to come get us. Not only is that not the description that Jesus has given us, that's not what the church has done through the centuries again and again and again. The church is among those many times through the story and the history of the church have stepped into the gap and fought for those who had no choice. I love the story that when Roman world was throwing away female babies that the church collected them and raised them as their own. Wouldn't you have liked to have been part of that church? Jesus says to this man, you've already received what you loved and it's final. Many will receive temporary rewards for loving possessions. Many will receive eternal rewards for loving God. This story may feel like to you that we have already, the die is cast and the story is already told and Jesus is saying, well, you're among the rich, you're Americans, you've gotten what you're going to get and that's it. I don't think that's what Jesus' point is at all, look and see with us the, the third point. You see Jesus came to change us now. In verses 27 to 31, it says, And he said, Then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they should come into this place of torment. The man is still living an entitled life in his place of torment, as Jesus describes him, he's not concerned for the people at the gate yet. He's concerned for his brothers. And I think it's right for us to be concerned about our family. I think it's right for us to be concerned about those that we are in a household with. I think it's right for us to protect them. But can't you see that our responsibility as humans and our responsibility as Christians is to look beyond the walls of our household and see the people that are suffering? Can anybody here speak to what it feels like to be dehumanized, to be unvalued, to not have enough food, to be considered unworthy of an education, to be considered unworthy of good health care? And the church has advocated for that through the centuries, and it's remarkable to me in this century, in this moment, the church seems to be arguing the opposite. We need to fight for our own and protect our own. And if somebody out there is poor, they probably deserve it. Clearly, God doesn't like them as much. This man says, I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house. I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. 
But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. This is one of those significant moments in the story. Have you been hearing what God's been saying? Have you listened? In Deuteronomy 14, 28 and 29, it says, The end of every three years you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner and the fatherless and the widow who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. There is this expectation that God's going to give resources to some of his children, and those resources are then going to be used and leveraged for his good and his causes. And in his causes, what's near and dear to God is that those who don't have would be cared for. That's the expectation. And God would continue to bless those who are gifted with money and gifted with helping. Helping people is hard. I can tell you, after being in Zambia, it is hard to actually help people. People will show up for a handout, get them to show up for education, get them to show up so that their, their, the trajectory of their lives could be changed, is much harder. Much fewer people show up. It is hard to help people. The question is, have we tried? There was one meal. It was a, an amazing night where we invited the the young men who were part of the seminary that's been begun there, and as these churches begin to explode, and they came and they began to testify, I put up the camera and I filmed and asked the question, what difference has God made in your life? It was astounding. There was an expectation that people's lives would be changed by Jesus Christ and that Jesus absolutely loves them in their plight. And at the end of the meal, we had a, what we would call a simple meal. And it was put out in these dishes and then there was cake. I watched the couple over the table from me bring out a pot that they had and they shoved not only in my leftovers and their leftovers and the cake on top of it and they pressed it down so that they could have food when they went home. I, I have no concept of that. Do you? Do we care? I would argue that God cares. In Isaiah 3, 14 and 15, it says, The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. There was something that God meant for the poor, and you're spending it on yourself. What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord of hosts? And maybe they'd say, well, what have I done? Isaiah 10, 1 through 3, Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice, to rob the poor of my people of their right. The widows may be be their spoil, that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help, and where will you leave your wealth? 
The expectation is that people are actually paying attention when God speaks and that God's people would listen to God when he speaks. And yet as Jesus tells this parable, the rich man is saying, go warn them. And Jesus says significantly, Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. I could have read so many things for you from the Old Testament and the New. In Isaiah 32, 6 and 7, for the fool speaks folly and his heart is busy with iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied and to deprive the thirsty of drink. As for the scoundrel, his devices are evil. He plans wicked schemes to ruin the poor with lying words, even when the plea of the needy is right. There is an expectation that we have read God's word and we have responded to God by loving him and in turn loving what he loves. Now the question is, how do we help? Well, the expectations of the ministry that we have now partnered with, Zambia Works and Hands of Hope, is that human dignity will be brought to those who are the least, that receive the least human dignity of all, the poorest of the poor, that every dollar would go to bringing fresh water, bringing education. I mean, they're putting a farm where they're learning how to grow in this sandy soil, and they're going to teach the next generation how to grow crops in this sandy soil so that it can change the trajectory for generations to come. I watched an older woman and I watched how she provided not only for her family in the poverty, but she was able to sell and provide for others as she learned to grow the crops and to use the remnants of her chicken farm in her sandy soil and produce healthy crops. And in the midst of all of that, that's not enough. That's not what brings human dignity because we've been so marred by sin. The church, Jesus Christ. But can you imagine bringing the message of Jesus Christ and not caring about the rest? Isn't that a bit obscene? I don't know the context of the picture that I saw, but I saw a picture one time of Native African Americans in Africa carrying a seat where a white missionary sat on that seat and they were her slaves. And he was bringing the message of the gospel in the context of slavery. Can't be that. It can't be affirming what the world says about the poor that they don't matter because they matter to God. And how can we say we love God if we don't love the people that God loves? Now, interestingly enough, he, the, the conversation goes on in verse 30. He says, and he said, no father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. They're not going to listen to Moses and the prophets, but if somebody rises from the dead, verse 31, and he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. That's a remarkable statement, but notice that he's about to give his life and rise from the dead and recognizing that there are some who will never get it. They're just not going to understand and they don't believe. 
And there are some who use Christianity today as a way to support and advance the cause of the wealthy only. Jesus doesn't talk about how to help the poor. I know this is hard. Uh, remarkably hard. Really infuriating. How hard is it to travel for three days? That's what it takes for me to get to Zambia. Give chickens and have them kill the chickens. They just, you don't get it. But how hard is it to be raised in a home that has never had? It's going gonna, it's gonna to be hard to help people. It's complex, but to whom much is given, much is expected. I made this statement that God will reward those who love him, and yet in this passage, it doesn't say anything about love. There is another passage that makes many of us troubled. In Matthew 25, Jesus describes a moment at the end of time, the great white throne judgment maybe, and he's using poet, poetry to describe it where God separates the nations before him as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And the sheep are going to enter into their rest and the goats are going to enter into destruction and to death. And the only thing that describes the difference between them is based on how they handle the poor and the needy. And we want to raise our hand and object and say, well, God, what do you mean? How can you say in Matthew 25, 45, and he will answer them, truly I say to you, you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. You didn't understand if you were going to love me, you had to love your neighbor. That's the very commandment found in Mark 12 when he was asked, what's the most important thing to God? What's the greatest commandment? What's the thing that God's watching? Of all the commandments in the Old Testament, Jesus said, the most important is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these, says our Lord Jesus. And it's almost as if we want to separate the two. I want to love God, but not love my neighbor. This is an argument for seeing the poor around us and leveraging what we have to build treasure in heaven. How do we build treasure in heaven? We use what God gave us to advance his causes. In our home and outside of our home. Train up our kids to do the same. Well, we're Americans. We deserve to be rich. Right? The interesting thing about this last section is that Jesus ironically describes that this man has no choice and in the essence gives us a choice. He basically says to us, someone's going to rise. You have Moses, you have the prophets, and someone is going to rise from the dead. Anybody with me? Anybody want to build treasure in heaven? And what's at stake? What's the least I have to give? Can't I live for myself mostly, like 80%, and if I give 20% of my, you know, or 10, 5%, 3%, 
It's not, he doesn't say anything about percentages. The expectation is that we would leverage all that we have for God and love him with our whole heart and express that love for him by loving our neighbor. I have been a student of 2020, haven't you? I have heard the political arguments. I have been engaged in the political arguments. I dropped out of them pretty early, thinking that there's no good happening when the temperature is this hot and everybody's angry. But my greatest disappointment in 2020 is singular. It is one thing. It's that the church didn't fight for the least of these. There was probably in my whole lifetime not a better time for the church to say, they're worth fighting for, whoever they are. The elderly, the infirm. How is it that the church is not fighting for the least of these? But I've got good news. There's still time. I think that's the point of his story. In this context, if you were to go back to verse 13 that concluded last week's sermon, no servant can serve two masters. He will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The application of this story is to love God with your whole heart, and you have nothing to worry about. Love God with all that you have and all that you are and ask him, how can I be about your business with what you've given me? One person made an application to me when I was very young. Jesus is saying that no one should have money. I think that's silly. Another Lazarus was wealthy and Jesus spent time with him and was housed there. There's no doubt that he had wealth, and there was no sense that he was being judged for having wealth. No, what we will be judged on is how we love God and how we love each other. And thank God that by faith in Jesus Christ, we have his Holy Spirit, and we have forgiveness, and we can now be about his business. If you ask the question, can I just believe in God and not care about anybody? I would argue that you never believed in God. Can I believe in God and not love him? I would argue that you never believed in God. Which is why Jesus told a story where the rich man goes to Hades. Because he could not have been a child of God and walked by that guy day after day and not seen him. What I'm arguing for is not that you go home and redo your checkbook and your budget. I'm arguing that we choose to love God and love our neighbor. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there are no words that we can say and express the gratitude that we have that you saw us at that gate that you saw us dehumanized by sin. 
and impoverished in our souls, requiring the Holy Spirit and to love you and to worship you and to become who we were created to be. Jesus didn't just step out to the gate. He came and dwelt among us. And I can't say thank you enough. Our love for you is just an expression, a mirror of what you've given to us again and again, and most significantly in the work of Jesus Christ. So thank you. And Father, we don't know how to help. People are messy. People are lost. Father, would you give us the wisdom to know how to use the funds that you've given us and the talents that you've given us and the wisdom that you've given us to care for those who are hurting around us and around the world. We know, Father, that you don't just love Americans. We know that you don't just love wealthy people. But we know that your children who are wealthy were given wealth to be generous. And I pray that you would make us generous. In Jesus' name, amen.